while flies individually may irritate and annoy us, nevertheless, we can't live without them. The biggest problem with reading an audiobook is that it actually is an amazing tool for allowing you as the author to hear the flaws of your book. I will never say Mozart again. It is now forever Mozart. Welcome to This is the Author, where authors talk about narrating their audiobooks. In this episode, meet biologist Jonathan Balcom, author and PBS host Stephen Johnson, and journalist Michael Easter. This is an episode for curious minds. Discover the essential role flies, yes, flies, play in our ecosystem, the reasons behind why we're living longer, and how to leverage the power of discomfort to improve health and happiness. Plus, hear what it was like for these inquisitive authors to record their audiobooks. Enjoy. Hi, this is Jonathan Balcom, author of Superfly, The Unexpected Lives of the World's Most Successful Insects. I wrote Superfly because I was aware that flies are such a huge group of animals and they come in contact with our lives continually. There's very few people who don't have experiences with flies. So I wanted to tap into the collective human angst we have about flies. I knew that there was some great, well, not some, lots of great science but most of that science doesn't percolate to the general public. So I wanted to bring that science to the surface so other people could learn about it. And because we've all had contacts with flies, it has some personal meaning to every reader. If I had to describe what it was like to record my audiobook in one word, that word would be new. It's something I've never done before. I've written several books, but I've never actually narrated my own book. And it's surprising how challenging it is you want to get it right. You want to get it kind of perfect. And maybe there's not perfection, but it's surprising how many tongue twisters the written word throws at you. So I found it more challenging than I expected. But just the fact that it was new, it wasn't something on my bucket list. But when I got invited to do it, it went straight on my bucket list. And it's lovely to have it in the bucket. I was surprised by how many words I had trouble pronouncing. Well, none of them were familiar words in the sense that I use them regularly. But people's names, flies' names, I've always loved Latin names, the scientific names for organisms. I tend to remember them better than their common names. But that doesn't mean they're easy to pronounce, and I certainly had some struggles with some of them. I don't know if I'm particularly proud of any particular part of my narration. It's the closest I've ever come to being asked to be an actor. And that was really cool. That was really interesting to experience that. And it made me really appreciate the skill of actors in what they do. And for that matter, people who record audiobooks as a major part of their professions. One of the joys of writing is that you're sharing stuff and that you're able to share it with your own voice. And that's an incredible privilege. So on that line, I'm very excited to share it with people. As for any specific things, I do hope that people come away with the broad take-home message, which is that while flies individually may irritate and annoy us, Nevertheless, we can't live without them. Collectively, flies are just absolutely indispensable elements of the world that we live on. And if readers come away with that and nothing else, I feel like I would have done something worthwhile. If I wasn't going to record my audiobook, I would possibly cast Jane Goodall to read it, because though she's not an actor, like Meryl Streep say, she is an iconic biologist. And I'm happy to say that she's 
read at least some of it and really loved it and sent me an email about that. But it makes me think of her as somebody I'd love to hear reading my book to others. Jane is definitely a great supporter and friend to have. My favorite place to listen to audiobooks, I would say, is in a car. I'm a bit time conscious, and if I can multitask, I'm drawn to doing that. And driving a car, you have to be there. You're kind of a captive audience, so that's a great time to listen to an audiobook for me anyway. My other vote would be on the couch, just lying and relaxing and listening to a book. And now I invite you to listen to a clip from my audiobook, Superfly. On about the sixth day, I realized that the four tiny red welts on my chest were not mosquito bites. It was our third week of a month's sojourn in Kruger National Park, South Africa, where I was one of a team of 14 biologists studying the movements and roosting habits of bats. A small group of us were taking a lunch break during a foray on foot to track the locations of several radio-tagged African yellow house bats. I had noticed that the welts were becoming larger and itchier with each passing day, but had shrugged it off, thinking I must be more sensitive to the bites of whatever African mosquito had had its way with me. As I absent-mindedly scratched the bumps through my shirt between bites of a sandwich, I felt a strange sensation, a faint tickling. I peeled off my shirt and scrutinized one of the welts. It was moving. Hi, this is Stephen Johnson, author of Extra Life, A Short History of Living Longer. I was originally inspired to write Extra Life because a lot of my books over the years have looked at innovation and looked at the tremendous amount of progress that we've made in some of the kind of less sexy parts of the world, right? When we think about innovation, we think about smartphones and high-tech TVs. But sometimes the more basic breakthroughs, like clean drinking water and antibiotics, the things that keep us alive, are really the most important things to focus on and tell the stories behind. This book actually predates the COVID pandemic by many years. I've been working on it for three or four years now. But as I was finishing writing the book, the pandemic really began in earnest. And suddenly, the idea of celebrating the achievements of public health and of reminding people how important science and medicine have been in keeping us alive and extending our lives over that period suddenly became newly relevant. And of course, it meant that I had to go back and add a lot of new information about COVID-19. But I think it made it more relevant than it would have been if it had appeared two or three years ago. If I had to describe what it was like to record my audiobook in one word, that word would be arduous, I think the word would be. <laughs> it's a lot of time. The biggest problem with reading an audiobook, I think, is that it actually is an amazing tool for allowing you as the author to hear the flaws of your book. <laughs> so you, you notice all these things, oh, I should have changed that word, or that word is repetitive. Of course, now it's too late to make those changes because the book is finished, and so it's a little bit taxing as an author, but hopefully you as the listener will not hear any of those flaws. They're just apparent to me. We ran into a complicated pronunciation question in this book because there's a long chapter near the beginning that talks extensively about life expectancy among the African population that is known as the Kung people. Their name is pronounced with that interesting little click sound, and it's spelled with an exclamation mark in the kind of English iteration of it. 
the actual way that it is pronounced, the click sound is the consonant, basically. And I just can't make my mouth <laughs> generate that sound. And so after a long back and forth, we decided to just stick with the westernized Kung formation, but we added a little explanation, which is explaining that based on my limitations, I was not going to try and do justice to the actual way that it's properly pronounced. You know, one of the things I'm most proud about this audiobook is on some level just doing it. This is actually the first of my kind of grown-up books that I've written. I did an audiobook for a young adult version of my earlier book, How We Got to Now, but I've never read one of my books all the way through, and I've written 13 or 14 books. So it's a lot of books to have gone without actually doing the audio. And I'm just really glad I did it. I think it was important in part because this book does have a television component to it, and so my voice is going to be part of the experience for people who happen to have watched the series as well as read the book. And so having some other voice in this, however better an actual audiobook reader they might have been, I think it was better to have me do it. And I hope readers feel the same way. If I wasn't going to record my audiobook, my dream narrator actually would be the co-host of the TV series, which is a wonderful British writer and historian, David Olashoga, who has this absolutely incredible, deep, resonant British voice. He's British Nigerian, and he just speaks beautifully. It's very annoying, I find, actually, in the show when you watch the TV show because this wonderful voice of David and then my weird, scratchy American voice. <laughs> so he would have been great, but sadly, you're stuck with me. And now you can listen to a clip from my audiobook. The strain of H1N1 that encircled the globe in the spring of 1918 spread at an alarming rate compared to most influenzas. It passed readily from person to person and successfully set off chains of cell rupture in the lungs of many of those people. But it wasn't particularly lethal. The flu's ability to race around the world in such a short amount of time, all those self-replicating spheres and all those lungs, was formidable. And yet many of those lungs recovered from the attack. In the technical language, the strain displayed a high morbidity rate combined with a more modest rate of mortality. It made copies of itself with fearsome skill, but it tended to let its hosts survive the encounter. The strain of H1N1 that erupted in the fall of 1918 would not be so generous. Hello, this is Michael Easter, author of The Comfort Crisis. I was inspired to write this book because I'm a health and performance journalist, and I have been my entire career. I've worked for magazines like Men's Health and Outside, different places like that, always covering health. And, you know, I thought I understood what makes humans healthy and happy. Then I spent 33 days in the Arctic backcountry. It was uncomfortable the entire time. Some of these discomforts were things like hunger, constant effort, constant cold, exposure to weather, even silence and solitude in nature can be sort of very eerie and uncomfortable at first. We also faced genuine challenge out there. Like we were put in positions where failure could have been, I mean, legitimately perilous. And all these discomforts sort of amplified the longer I was out there. But when I got back to my modern sort of comfortable life, I was totally transformed. I was 10 pounds lighter, I was a lot fitter, and it felt like the dial on my mental and physical health and even spiritual health had been moved 10 notches. I wondered why that was, and then I noticed the contrast between my life in the Arctic and my life at home, and it was like 
oh my God, my modern life is so unbelievably comfortable in every way. I'm just surrounded by comfort. I'm never faced with challenge. And this was diametrically opposite to what I experienced in the Arctic. And I wanted to learn if there was any effects of all this comfort we're living in. And so set off an investigation. And now we have a book. If I had one word to describe what it was like recording my book, I would say enlightening. The reason that I say that is because there was a variety of things I learned along the way. For one, I realized that my Idaho and Utah upbringing has not been good to me in terms of pronouncing various words. <laughs> but more importantly, I think that the process enlightened me to understanding my book better, having to read it out loud. I started to think about why I put things in certain places and why I phrase things certain ways. And it made me think about some of the ideas quite a bit differently. And hopefully it leads me to sort of understand why I did the thing in the first place, sort of the deeper internal reasons that we sometimes don't realize uh, along the way. A word that I realized that I didn't know how to pronounce was probably every 10th word in this book, apparently. <laughs> in particular, there's a section of the book that takes place in Bhutan. And I traveled there, met a lot of different Bhutanese people, went to all these different places in the country. And that was an exceedingly challenging chapter. I mean, constantly having to reference how do we say this and having to make the most educated guesses we can. But beyond that, there were also some inexcusable words for me. For example, Mozart, the composer in the book. And as I read that, I said, Mozart, Harry Nangle, who helped record this book, just sort of shook his head and said, it's Mozart. And I went home and I told my wife that happened. And she just said, God, you didn't say Mozart, did you? And I said, yes, I did. So now the lesson is I will never say Mozart again. It is now forever Mozart burned into my brain in embarrassment in this studio and now on this podcast. If I wasn't going to record my audiobook and I could cast anyone to record it, living or dead, I would choose, and there was no question in my mind about this, I would choose George Jones, the country singer. I would listen to him sing government tax codes and just be in awe. His singing voice is unbelievable, but if you've ever heard him in an interview, it's similar. It's this very captivating voice that just, there's so much emotion and something behind it that just grabs you. I think that he was such a interesting singer because he really sang from the heart. It was not an intellectual act at all for him. And I think that's how he would narrate my book as well. It would all come from the heart and that voice of the possum as he was known and man. The last great audiobook that I listened to was a interview between Bill Moyers and Joseph Campbell. The book is called The Power of Myth. So Campbell was a leading academic who studied myth, and he showed that these hero's journeys exist in all cultures, where this hero leaves the comfort of his home, travels out on this trying middle ground, and then emerges on the other side better off and takes these lessons that he or she has learned back into their normal life and becomes an improved person. Now, I have themes like this in my own book, but what I love so much about this book and the audio recording of it is that you could hear Campbell talk about this in his own words with a journalist asking him questions. So he was kind of forced to get a little less academic with things and really just talk off the cuff and have these sort of fascinating discussions using examples from all these different cultures that was exceedingly eye-opening for me. 
I listen to audiobooks in my garage while exercising. And now, listen to a clip from my audiobook. Commercial flying is incredibly safe. The statistics say you're infinitely more likely to die in a crash on the way to the airport than you are in the plane. But this rule does not apply to bush plane flights in Alaska. About 100 of these flights a year end in fire and brimstone, and the FAA recently released an unprecedented warning to Alaskan bush plane pilots after a spike in accidents. This year has been particularly bad. Fierce weather and thick fog and wildfire smoke have been messing with visibility. Donnie tells me that Brian has a colleague named Mike who recently crashed after misreading the weather. Mike was lucky enough to walk away, but the plane had to be rebuilt. Once Brian drops us in the Arctic backcountry, we'll face more dangers. Furious grizzlies, 1,500-pound moose, packs of flesh-craving wolves, wild-eyed wolverines, blood-addicted badgers, raging glacial rivers, violent whiteout snowstorms, sub-zero temperatures, hurricane-force winds, precipitous cliffs, deadly diseases with names like tularemia and hantavirus, swarming mosquitoes, swarming mice, swarming rats, the runs, the barfs, the bleeds. There might be a million ways to die in the West, but there are two million in the Alaskan backcountry. This is the Author is a production of Penguin Random House Audio. Thank you for listening. For more behind-the-mic content and audiobook recommendations, visit www.penguinrandomhouseaudio.com slash next listen.